Awfully quiet. <laughs> Greetings, church. Praise the Lord for gathering us here this morning. A uh, couple things before we pray and before we open up scripture to look at our next text here in Matthew 5. Are you enjoying more breathing room? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. I also want to thank uh, personally all of you who worked hard on preparing and just uh, setting up this place for us. Obviously, the work is not done, so we're just going to take it one day at a time. And uh, praise the Lord for this opportunity. We do want to worship God. And also, second, I made sure to look up how to turn off Siri so she doesn't interrupt us any longer, especially during sermon. So... Um, Praise God for technology, but sometimes it gets in the way. Um, let's go ahead and bow down, and we will pray to the Lord as we begin to look into his word. Father, as the King of kings, we bow down before you, and we come to you, and we bring you nothing. You, you don't need anything. To the king in need of nothing, we simply bow down and we acknowledge our own bankruptcy and desperate need for you, desperate need for Christ. We confess these things before you this morning and, and we ask that you would remind us again and again that truly we need Christ every single day of our life what he had accomplished for us, what has been credited to our account, we stand in his righteousness alone. And Lord, I pray that you would minister to our hearts this morning from this passage and that you would address each one of us individually where we're at, what we need to take care of, what we need to address, with whom we need to reconcile, Father, I pray that we would not play religion, that we would not play church, but that we would consider the reality in our hearts and understand and know that you look deeper, you know what's going on, and your goal is to expose all of that so that we may confess and so that we may cling to Christ and not hide and not lower your standard so that we can reach it on our own ability. Thank you for Jesus again. Be with us this morning. Amen. I recently read a story of a 27-year-old man named Connor. Connor, who's diagnosed with severe OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, at one point did not leave his house for an entire year because he was convinced that he had killed someone. Listen to his testimony. He says, I lie in my bed and I think I've killed someone. I can lie in my bed for three months, four months at a time. And the realization that I haven't done anything can come up to six, seven months later. According to Connor, he's been diagnosed with OCD when he was four. 
Interesting fact. Doctors who have been working with Connor to find a cure for his illness, according to the article, are running out of options. Having tried all kinds of therapies, remedies, counseling, and even drugs, Connor's condition seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. Admittedly, I, I don't know what ended up happening to, article, to Connor because the article did not state that much. But as I describe this person, how do you feel about this fellow Connor? Or perhaps about his condition? Do you find that he is a bit abnormal, perhaps even crazy? Well, friends... I myself have to make a bold and honest admission. I do not merely think that I might have murdered a man. I know that in fact I have. In fact, many people, almost in, in every sphere of life, I consider this is true. I had casualties at work. I had casualties on the way to work. I had casualties in my family. In fact, I had casualties here in the church. I have, in fact, murdered friends, politicians, especially the last couple of years, and even some brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, I am worse than Connor. Now, before you pull out your cell phone and begin to dial 911, let me explain. You see, I've never ended anyone's life physically. Because that's, of course, what we think about, right? When we think of murder, we're, we're right away, we resort to thinking of physical killing and murder. If I had, I probably wouldn't be here this morning. And praise God that by his mercy, he had prevented this action from taking Place, but according to Jesus' words before us this morning, I am as guilty as the murderer who had physically taken someone's life. And get this, so are all of you. So are all of you. Not because of OCD, but because of heart murder. We're all guilty of. I want you to open to Matthew 5, and we'll read from verses 17 through 26. We continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and in verse 21, as we will read, Jesus begins to explain the fullness of God's perfect law. And the reason why he does that is he, he allows the holy law and the heaviness of that law to make us wholly humble before the Lord. There's an intent in bringing out six instances of the law here in verses one through, or verses 25, uh, 21 through 48. His intent is to let law bear on our conscience, on our minds, on our hearts, and convict us so that we would feel need for him. The heaviness of God's law triggers humility before God. 
He had just said in verse 20, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees here were experts at adjusting the standard of God's perfect law in order to quote unquote, fulfill it. They were managing God's commands, reducing them to superficial, simply external obedience. And here in our verses, Jesus teaches that true obedience meant a heart deep, a heartfelt internal conformity to the intent of his holy law. Please look with me at verse 17 of Matthew 5. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, That unless your righteousness surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now in verses 21 through 26, Jesus says that when it comes to the sixth commandment, It is not enough that we have not physically taken someone's life. God's intention is that we do nothing or say nothing or or think nothing or even wish nothing that in any sense would defraud another brother or sister who is created in the image of God. That is how deep, that is how wide this commandment is. The intent of the sixth commandment, in fact, is love, love, because remember what Jesus says. He condensed the entire law into two statements, love the Lord, your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do anything otherwise, you are committing what Jesus calls a heart murder, a heart murder. And I want us to look at two points here, two aspects. Number one, Jesus in these verses, he wants us to first understand the matter of heart murder. 
understand the matter of heart murder. And second, beginning with verse 23, he wants us to resolve it. Understand first and then resolve. So let's look at the first aspect. Understand the matter of heart murder. There are two understandings here that he shares. Number one is deficient understanding and number two is complete understanding. What, what he, the way he interprets the law. So the first one is, is deficient and, and it was attributed to the ancient. It was attributed to men of old and their understanding was simply this. It's a matter of acts only. Murder is a matter of our acts. So if we don't kill someone, then we're okay. In verse 21, he begins to identify what people typically thought of when they heard of the sixth commandment during his day. He says, you have heard, you have heard. He doesn't say you have read, you have heard. It's a reminder for Jesus's hearers that most of them had not personally read the law of God, but instead they heard. They were informed of the context of God's law from others, probably by the various readers in the synagogue. In fact, Jesus never posed this question. Have you not read to any of the common people, to general public? He only asks, have you not read, if you look at the New Testament, of the Sadducees and Pharisees because they had direct access to the law of God. The rest of the people had only the audible access to the law. They were at the mercy of their leaders. So when Jesus spoke of what was said to the ancients or older generations, he's not referring to the commandment itself, but to the particular way in which the sixth commandment was interpreted by these religious rules. Notice the contrast here. There's an interpretation. He says that you're used to hearing verse 21, but I say to you, I'm going to give you another interpretation. I'm going to give you a deeper interpretation. Now, at first glance, it seems like Jesus is pinning himself, right? Against the commandment of God. You have heard it said, but here's what I'm going to tell you. As if somehow they're, they're on opposite ends. They're on polar ends. But Jesus is confronting the interpretation. In fact, the interpreters of the law, the Jewish rabbis who are the teachers of the law, they are the objects of Jesus's confrontation. In fact, the entire religious system here on the Sermon on the Mount is being confronted with, it, with its leaders. Not just one or two guys, but the entire system. These ancient leaders had taught the people a mere letter of the law. Interpretation. They had interpreted and taught that the commandment was kept if you and I simply refrained from taking someone's life to them. It was merely about physical acts. Their focus is external. They upheld the command as long as it related to the social commitment to justice in court. And that's good. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. You will have to present your case and you will be judged. So Jesus quotes here, Exodus 20, which we read also portions of Deuteronomy 16, along with numbers 35. If you commit murder, you will be found guilty before the court. 
but their interpretation here fell short of God's ultimate standard. Just because you don't commit the act of murder, you have not exhausted what the law was ultimately designed to accomplish. Nothing was said in their interpretation about your heart attitude. What's in your heart, brother? What's in your heart, sister? The heart offense of the murderer. Because it all starts there, right? It's not simply act. It's attitude. And their understanding was deficient. They, they gave people the impression that they could keep the commandments even if their hearts were out of line. In other words, they were simply trying to manage their sin externally. Manage murder. So long as they haven't physically murdered someone. No wonder the harsh, harsh words of, of Jesus in the previous verse where he says he's looking at the crowd. He's looking at his disciples. He was looking at the followers and he says, listen, I tell you what, brother and sister, that if your righteousness does not surpass that righteousness, the righteousness that upholds only the external, only the act, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Friend, how do you understand the law of God and apply it to yourself? Are you merely focusing on the externals, merely focusing on activities, on the things you have to do. You might be thinking, well, as long as that other person doesn't know, or well, well, you know, I didn't cause any physical harm. Who cares what I think about that person? Who cares what's in my heart about that particular individual? I don't hurt them. This is a very deficient understanding of the matter of murder. And Jesus right away picks up on that and he seeks to correct it. And therefore he gives him the correct understanding. Listen, it is not merely a matter of our acts. It is primarily a matter of our attitudes. Not merely a matter of our acts, but primarily a matter of our attitudes. That's why he said in verse 22, but I say to you, but I say to you. As the son of God, Jesus here asserts himself as the ultimate and true interpreter of God's law. He speaks emphatically and it's obvious in the original when you read because it says, and I myself, like you have these, these guys here who interpreted one way, but I myself tell you this, listen, this is in fact, one of the most outstanding features of Christ's ministry. He never borrows authority from someone else. He never quotes someone else. He simply says, but I say to you, or truly, truly, I say to you, why? Because he's the son of God who possesses all authority. That's why if you flip to chapter seven of Matthew, as soon as he finishes this sermon, look what it says here in verse 28. And when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Why? Scribes borrowed authority. And this one, Jesus Christ, the son of God comes in and he says, listen, I don't care what they tell you. I tell you that it's more than actions. It's about your attitude. It's about your heart. So we better listen, church. Christ himself is interpreting for us God's 
command. And what is his interpretation? Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into hell. Wow. Jesus says, you have been led to believe that it was sufficient simply not to kill. You have been led to believe that your responsibility to others was fulfilled in the mere observance of the letter of the law. But I say to you that the thoughts and the intent of your heart are no less important in the eyes of God. God sees in and through. Not like we see. We may miss on judging someone else, how how good or evil he may be, but not God. The issue of murder church is primary, primarily the murder of the heart. In other words, the attitude of your heart is primarily, and it precedes the act of your hand. The attitude of your heart precedes the act of your hand. Your hands matter, absolutely but your heart is primary and heart dictates what your hand does. In fact, it was always this way. It's not like Jesus has given us some kind of new interpretation, something that, that, you know, he comes up with. Yeah, that's what they thought. And and perhaps that was true. But now that I'm here, I'm going to tell you something else. No, listen, it was always about the heart in the old Testament. Always. God always pursued us. And our attitudes. He wanted to transform our hearts, not just externally. I mean, consider what some of these verses in the Old Testament. First Samuel 6, 16, 7 says, For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Or Second Chronicles 16, 9, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Heart. Psalm 51, 6 says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. Not that you want to just see us do certain things. That's also true, but it's deeper. Truth in the innermost being and in the hidden parts, you will make me known wisdom. Proverbs 16.2 says, all the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord waits the motives. We look at the outside appearance as not guilty of murder. But the Lord looks in, the, in our hearts and he says, guilty of murder. Why? Because you have anger. Real righteousness, as opposed to the righteousness of, of Pharisees, the righteousness that characterizes citizens of heaven, extends into your motives. Look what Jesus teaches here. He says, from long ago, the people were taught that sixth commandment meant that if anyone murdered another, they would be in danger of judgment. Because he says here, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I tell you, whoever is angry with his brother is guilty of the same. Exactly the same phrase is used in verse 22 and 21. If you commit physical murder, you will be liable to the court. That means you're susceptible to the judgment, to the federal code. 
And here he says that if you get angry with someone, you're susceptible to the same exact judgment. You're going to be presented before the court and you will be guilty. I mean, doesn't it sound like Jesus is, is making this command so strict that it's, it's humanly impossible for us to keep? Right, and that's the point. That's exactly the point. Naturally, we want to soften the edge of God's command. Like lower the standard. Like the ancients. But friends, we cannot, we must not. Jesus intended for his hearers to feel the the full weight of God's lie. And if you just sit and if you just listen and, and if you just look inside your heart right now and you consider the reality that perhaps is taking place right now or, or, or something that characterized you a week ago or a month ago, you just cannot escape the weight of God's law. I am guilty as charged, even though I never killed anyone. What does it mean to be angry with someone? The grammar of the verb Jesus uses might literally be translated as whoever is provoked to anger in an ongoing habitual grudge against someone. It's, it's the type of anger that does not die. One that refuses to forgive and to, to reconcile with, with your brother. This kind of anger is a, is a form of heart murder. This angry man is, is guilty before the court onto judgment. He is guilty to basically suffer the death penalty. Because that's what, that's what he says here. If you commit murder, you must die. That's what the Old Testament says. And Jesus says, if anger is found in your heart, they got to take you out. And they got to stone you. That's God's standard. High. Lofty. And it's meant to crush us. It's meant to kill us. Unfortunately, even though, you know, anger is enough to to make murderers out of all of us. It it gets even worse because Jesus doesn't stop with anger and he says, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. The actual term that he uses is raka, which maybe some of your translations have that. And this term raka is is a term of contempt. It's an insult, it's like a quasi curse word. It's meant to hurt someone. Some translators nowadays, they they translate this word as brainless idiot. You call someone that, worthless fellow. You empty-headed. It is compared to insults people might use today to disrespect someone. Like in anger or some kind of rage, just call someone, you knucklehead. You complete dummy. In calling someone such names, the speaker shows his contempt for that person and reveals pride. You cannot speak such language without feeling like you are higher and above and over that particular person who you're calling knucklehead. Jesus teaches us that such names 
spoken in time of anger are acts of heart murder that are forbidden by the sixth command. Why? Because such name-calling takes away from the human dignity, from their personhood, who is created in the image of God. Oftentimes, we don't think that way. Name-calling, whenever we get angry with someone, we just throw something at them, and we don't realize that we not only diminish that person who is created in the same image that we're created, but what we do is we insult the Creator as well. We insult the creator, not just his creation. Such words, Jesus says, are enough to make someone guilty of murder before the highest court in the land. But there's more. He says, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to burn in hell. Stupid or dull. It's a serious attack on, on the personhood of another. One commentator said, to call someone raka is to merely attack their head. But the sense of calling them a fool is to attack their spirit. It's the difference between carelessly and thoughtlessly calling someone dummy and seriously condemning someone as a complete and utter reject in the sight of God. A fool in the worst sense. Jesus said, such an attitude puts you in danger of the very fires of hell. Literally says here, it's guilty enough to go into the fiery Guiana. was the name of a valley south of Jerusalem that was used as a city dump where trash was continually burning and smoke would never cease. And Jesus says, if you have this attitude in your heart, to name call someone, you are guilty enough to be discarded over there and burned there. Wow. I mean, do you see the point of the sixth command, church? God's original intention for his command is much greater than, than mere prohibition to murder. Its real intention is that we, we do nothing, we say nothing, or think nothing that would in any way diminish the humanity humanity of another person because he too or she too is created in the image of God. If we do, then we're guilty of heart murder. As a matter of fact, God's intention is far more than mere negative aspect of this command to refrain from killing. Positively speaking, God's intention is for us to not just not do these negative things, but positively to begin to love because this is what later on John writes in, in 1 John 3, 14 and 15. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. It's much greater. It's much higher. The standard is so lofty. And we are constantly tempted to lower the standard for us to qualify, for us to fulfill, for us to reach. But the standard must be there. It must stay there. We can't lower it 
And we must accomplish these things only in Christ and through Christ. That's why we need Jesus. Let's face it, church, this, all of us here now, in God's eyes, are murderers. We may not be spilling physical blood. And in fact, no human court would ever convict us. But God sees us guilty of murder. You know, maybe some of you are sitting here this morning are committing ongoing, unrepentant acts of murder, even as we speak. So then what shall we do about it? Thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us in the dark as to the solution. Remember, his goal in the sermon is to expose our hearts so that we might see our need for Jesus Christ. He also instructs us how to deal with it. Jesus wants us, as one commentator puts it, to nip the buds of anger in order to avoid the blooms of murder. Nip the buds of anger in order to avoid the blooms of murder. So I want you to look at number two, resolve the matter. Not only understand the matter of heart murder, but resolve the matter. And two things Jesus teaches us here by these two illustrations from verses 23 through 26. Number one, that we must repent and reconcile before we worship God. Repent and reconcile before you worship God. It was common practice for any lawful and faithful Jew to present offerings in the, ta- uh, in the temple. And here we see a man, Jesus brings this example, this illustration of a man who has something to offer to the Lord. And in the middle of his offering, in the middle of his praise, he's probably like us standing, worshiping, praising the Lord. All of a sudden it dawns on him. Wow. God is so gracious. God is so merciful to me in allowing me to, to offer this sacrifice. Like he provides for me. And he remembers right there that he and his brother, James, for instance, are, are not on speaking terms. They have something together. There, there's something that for which James blames him. Something. Look at verse 23. Therefore, when you are presenting your offering and there, remember that your brother has something, something against you, that this something must be seen in its context of what Jesus teaches here in these verses. Perhaps the man was approaching God's altar and the Holy Spirit brings to him into his mind that he has held on to his anger towards a particular fellow believer and has to, has refused for a while to let that anger go. He's holding on to it. Or perhaps he remembers that, that he has harbored contempt in his heart for a neighbor or maybe a church member or a family member. And maybe he has even used some insults directed at that particular man. Or perhaps there, right before the altar of God, God convicts him of the fact that he dared to slander another brother or sister in his heart and to others. And there's hatred and then there's resentment. And as such a man stands before God, ready to to lay down his, his offering at the altar, God says, stop, stop. And recall that you're guilty of heart murder. You dare not stand in God's presence this way. And notice something here. Two things. First, 
The question who's at fault is irrelevant here in this first illustration. You could be the guilty party or not. The point is you need to take the initiative. If you're aware, if the Lord opens up to you that there is some kind of disagreement, there is some kind of anger from you or towards you, you need to stop and resolve. Not that you have something against your brother, but you know that your brother has something against you. But secondly, Jesus teaches that it's more important to be reconciled with your brother than to engage in religious activity. And get this, not because religious activity is not important. It's very important. In fact, Jesus tells them, you have to offer. You come back and offer. It's very important that you come and that you praise and then you worship God. But you must reconcile first because God hates hypocrisy. God hates hypocrisy. D.A. Carson says men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love. Men love to substitute ceremony for integrity, purity, and love, but Jesus will have none of it. I mean, don't we all love to cover our messes with church? We get into disputes on the way to church. And just because we spend an hour here worshiping the Lord, praising, looking at each other's faces, enjoying our time together, we're like, it's all resolved, it's all good, we feel good about it. Jesus says coming to church is not enough. Offering your gift is not enough. We must repent and ask for forgiveness and be reconciled with the one we've offended or that's offended by us. I love what Sam Storm says regarding this verse. He says, worship is not always enhanced by better music or better preaching, but it is enhanced by better relationships. I think this is so key, so important. I think especially for our church, this is something that we need to think through and, and, and dwell on. Over the last year, we have been dealing with a lot, facing with a lot of people who maybe we had a misunderstanding with. Maybe we slandered someone on the way out. Maybe we've never really sat and dealt with that murderous anger in our hearts. And we've come here and, and for the last number of months we've been worshiping and we're trying to find solutions simply in the amount of time we spend here. I think it's important for us to consider these words because Jesus says you must deal with your heart you must address the anger. You must address this disagreement. You must address the slander before you come and, and you worship. Why? Because as, as Sam Storm says, we worship with one another. These relationships are so important. And when I know that I come to to church, when I know that I come to a live group or I, I come to a place where where we're going to meet with, with fellow saints, and, and I love these folks. 
I'm full of love towards them and I want them to grow and I want them to experience the gospel of Christ over and over and over again. You know how sweet that fellowship and worship will be? But if we come to church with hearts full of hatred, anger, and we're just simply trying to do church, to offer things up to the Lord. Psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my hearts, the Lord will not hear. So take inventory of your heart personally. Consider. Because the principle and the point that Jesus is making here is you got to kill your sin before you kill the offering. Kill your sin. Confess sin. Resolve sin before you resolve to worship Christ. Deal with sin. Settle this breach Deal with the murder before you worship the Lord in purity. And then the second principle here that, that he goes after in verses 25 through 26 is repent and reconcile now. Like today's a perfect time to do this. Don't wait till tomorrow. Right now, do it. The, the second illustration here is likewise very familiar to the modern Jew, especially those living in the Roman culture. If you had a dispute with your brother about anything, you would often go to court. You would grab him, and both of you would head over to court to settle your dispute. And then the judge would hear you both out and would decide the matter and would then judge. Innocent party will get what he's looking for. The guilty party will be punished. And Jesus said, as, as you're on the way to court, there's a great opportunity to settle. In fact, it's practiced right now all the time. You have a defendant and you have a plaintiff. Plaintiff brings a case against someone. Defender needs to defend, but he may want to settle out of court. Whether he's guilty or maybe he just doesn't want to deal with it, go through court, spend all that money. He could just get together with plaintiff and say, listen, I, we can settle out of court. How much do I need to give you? But get this. On the way to court, once you come inside and you present your case, then the judge rules. It's too late to settle. Once the judge hears your case, it's too late to settle. And then the typical procedure would then follow. The judge would, would find the guilty party, hand you over to the officer. The officer will take you to jail, lock you up, and you will never get out of there until you pay back what is owed. Now here, the principle here, there's one. And that is you deal with your heart murder quickly while there is still time. Today, you're harboring guilt or you're, you're harboring anger. Or maybe there's some kind of hatred. Maybe you slandered someone and you deal with it today. Today, you have time to deal with it. Because... He says in verse 26, truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now, this isn't meant to teach us that we can buy ourselves out of God's judgment. It's very important. Quite the opposite. This means to impress upon us, and I think this is where Jesus is, is going. It, it means to, to reinforce the impossibility of us buying back our guilt, what is due to him. And it's meant to reinforce this urgency 
that while you still have a chance right now, deal with your sin. We must be quick. We must reconcile now. Don't manage heart murder, repent and reconcile. And you might be asking, would God put a believer under such judgment? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Of course, of course he wouldn't do that. All of our wrath, right, for our sins has been already placed on Jesus Christ and and we're forgiving in him. And we're in fact called the beloved of God because Jesus, the beloved, had accomplished everything for us. And if we're in him, then we get all the grace. But turn the question around and ask this, would a true, genuine believer continue to to hold unrepentantly to, to such a murderous attitude towards another professing believer? And the Bible's answer is no. As we've already seen, the apostle John said, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Brothers and sisters, the the lifestyle of unrepentant heart murder is not a lifestyle indicative of a believer, of a disciple of Christ, of one who belongs into this kingdom, kingdom of Christ. Which again emphasizes for us the urgency and the need to repent now while you can and before you face the judgment seat of God. Now, if you feel absolutely crushed by the weight of sin this morning, friend, Jesus has a solution. And this is what is so comforting. Not only Jesus has the solution, Jesus is your solution. The reality is, considering this text here, that we are more like Pharisees than we are like Jesus, right? Aren't we all? We're more like Pharisees than we're like Jesus. And as we keep saying from this pulpit, the entire point of the sermon is, come to Jesus. (laughs) You need Christ. I need Christ. And if you've read these chapters and are overwhelmed by the absolute high standard of the law and of our sinfulness, which he exposes, that's great. But if you haven't, then you're reading it wrong. When properly interpreted and applied, the holy heaviness of God's law makes us holy, humble before our God. Listen, the reality is that you and I are worse than Connor. Connor thinks he killed someone. We have done it. When properly interpreted, the sixth commandment makes all of us absolute murderers, doesn't it? Aren't you thankful for Jesus who not only properly interpreted this command, but also satisfied the complete demands of the law for us? He didn't try to just lower the standard, to adjust the standard, to manage it so that if someone was going to try him, he would escape God's scrutiny. No, he exceeded it. He earned his righteousness in which we stand. And how grateful must we be this morning that God has mercy upon us through Christ. He graciously pardons us who turn to Jesus away from our murderous ways. He never turns away from us, 
from those who turn to him in repentance, but graciously, he says, washes us and cleanses us from all sin. And so I just want to invite you and and we want to pray for you this morning if you are this person who have not trusted Christ but are looking to manage anger and manage murder. Don't do it. Jesus did it for you. Come and confess and repent. And he's gracious to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now as God's beloved who are empowered by the spirit, we can truly love God and we can truly love our neighbor because we have been loved. We love not because we generate this love from within, but because we have been loved. We have been first loved, John says, and that is why we're able to love. No need to manipulate the law, no reason to manage anger. We confess sin. We confess our need for Christ, and we resolve to have godly relationships going forward. Maybe the Lord stopped you this morning before we had communion. Or perhaps during our time here, maybe there's someone in this room who you need to be reconciled, or maybe there's someone who was in this room but no longer is in this room who you need to go after and be reconciled. Oh, may God lead you to do so. While, Jesus says, you are still on your way. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the clarity of your word. We are humbled. It is dreadful to fall under the scrutiny of your law because we can never exceed it, can never measure up to it. And we thank you for your son who did. And in him we, we stand and in him we live. And so as those who are part of Christ, as those who name ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus, help us to be quick. I pray that you would bless our church, our congregation, our our fellowship together, that it would be sweet because we have great relationships with one another. Not because we have other external things that unite us, but that we have Christ and we have his love flowing from one person to the next. Help us, Lord, not to sweep these things under the rug, but because the gospel exposes all things and we could come out clean and we can confess our sins, be, do, be those who, who do that on regular basis, Lord. And we trust that you will create a unity as you have done these last few months and that you will continue to do based on your love that flows through us. Do that for us, we pray, because that is your plan. We commit ourselves to doing these things by your grace and by the power of the Spirit. We pray these things for your glory and our good and our growth. Amen.